Yes, all right. Stop being a knob. Just because I asked you to back away from the mic when you said that. You need to go to the other side of the room. Fine. Welcome to Sustainable 255. Yes, welcome yourself all. We are your friendly little weekly environment podcast. Ain't we all? Yes. All about people and the planet. And why, despite some people making a fat pile of cash out of everything, there are still some reasons to chip away at the ankles of capitalism, yes? <laughs> yes. And what are we going to be starting to smash today? Well, we may or may not be smashing the very idea of valuing things in nature in sort of economic terms, putting a price tag on things, putting a price tag specifically on whales. The country. Oh, no, that, I mean, that is either priceless or worthless, depending on your point of view. Neither am I. Neither am I. Uh, no, we're talking about the ones, the big flubbery, blubbery things that are in the sea uh, and apparently are important because the um, the bankers have now decided they're important. And that is basically the premise of this book we are going to be talking about with the author of said book, the author being Adrienne Buller, who is the author of a book called The Value of a Whale. And it is all very interesting and economicsy and brilliant. And Adrienne is very good at explaining economicsy things to thick people like us, or specifically me. (laughs) Yeah, so the book is called The Value of a Whale, and we start talking about the price tags that economists put on whales. But really what this is about is about the idea that green growth and green capitalism is going to, could ever, and should save the planet. Adrian's entire book is about a takedown of all of the ways in which money and economics and finance and thinking about those things and the love and the rapacious, greedy lust of cash has corrupted our ability to save the ugly fish or the whale. So that's what it's all about. Talking of the greedy, rapacious love of cash, we are a listener-supported podcast. Oh, so monstrous hypocrites. <laughs> monstrous. We need, we need your cash. Um, so go to patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash sustainable and give us the price of a whale or the price of an earwig or the price of a single-celled amoeba, whatever floats your boat, because we need cash. And greed is good. Oh, dear. God, see, this is the problem. This is the problem, this here Dave. is the problem. We do work for cash, for environmental charities and all, <laughs> but these are very much our own views, isn't they all? Yes. And Adrian's own views as well. Uh, so if you've got any beef with anything that you hear, take it up with me or all or Adrian, but not with anyone for whom we work, yes? Yes. So we started by asking Adrian about the premise of her book, the starting question in her book. What is the value of a whale? You might think you know the answer, but unless you work for the International Monetary Fund, we bet that you don't. If you are the IMF, which is the International Monetary Fund, international financial institution, uh, they have decided that the value of a whale is about $2 million US. um, And they've based that on a number of kind of factors uh, that they think are important. um, One of which is, you know, how whales contribute to ecotourism. And another is, you know, the amount that they contribute to carbon sequestration over their lifetimes. um, And based on those kinds of 
factories arrived at a value for 2 million US per whale, saying that, you know, we should spend that much uh, to kind of protect them because they're much, you know, more efficient and valuable means of fighting climate change than, you know, CCS or other things, for example, was the comparison that they used. So if you're them, it's it's two million. I'm not sure if everyone else feels that way about whales. And is, is that like all whales or like big ones or small ones or <laughs> the ones that are nice to look at and come nice and close to the boats as opposed to the ones that you never see? So big whales. So they did great whales specifically. So sorry to dolphins and porpoises. I think they were sadly excluded. Uh, No value there. Uh, (laughs) But if you were a blue whale, a humpback whale, a sperm whale, any of the ones with fun names, you know, you're worth two million. So. What what are they? What is that saying? So someone says we've worked it out. We've put it into Microsoft Excel, and a whale we reckon is worth two million pounds dollars. What what are they actually saying? about the whale when they're doing that? Yeah, so I think, you know, the funny thing is that I think it comes from a sort of misguided but well-meaning place. And this is actually quite a popular thing to do these days. It's not just whales. People have tried to do the same thing for elephants and a few other things um, where they say, you know, we don't value these things and therefore, you know, they're being destroyed or, you know, we're losing biodiversity or all those kinds of things. And so it comes out of this effort to say, okay, if we wanted to protect them in a way that sort of reflects how we value them, you know, what are they worth? And obviously it falls apart really quickly when you decide that whales are only valuable because people go on whale watching tours off the coast of Alaska, which is kind of what they did. But that's because, you know, that's one of the only ways we know how to apply a kind of price tag to this kind of animal. That's, you know, the closest proxy that we have, I guess. Um, But it comes from a place of wanting to, I think, find a way to ensure that we protect these kinds of species. Um, and in this case, you know, particularly because they have um, really great uh, impacts on, on the carbon cycle and on the climate crisis. Whales unite, whales will fight, whales will go on eating plankton. That's not a good thing, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Like sticking a bit of string with a price tag around the neck of a whale. For a start, they've got enough things around their necks. Like We've talked about that on this podcast before. But that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing, isn't it? You can't... Like, haven't we learned from like Brexity things that, you know, saying, oh, this, you know, your European Union means that in three decades, your growth is going to be 4% more than it might <laughs> otherwise be, isn't as powerful as, well, you know, freedom, Bendy Manana's values. Like people, people don't think about money. They think about values, whatever they say, right, with all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I would like to think that. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, and I think that's a pretty like intuitive way to see this. I think most people that I've spoken to, whenever I bring up this example, and it's obviously the title example of the book, so I care about it a lot. Um, but whenever I do speak to people about it, you know, the general reaction is that this is like intuitively absurd and kind of meaningless. Um, the problem is that we live under a very, very like oppressive capitalist system that means that to justify any kind of action on the environment and climate crisis, any policy decision, really, um, it always has to be filtered through um, sort of economic terms and through, you know, monetary terms in particular. Um, and so, yeah, I would argue that this is not a good thing. I think it's a problematic expression of perhaps a genuine desire to try and protect biodiversity or to, you know, engage with the climate crisis. But it's one that's, you know, operating within the confines of a system that is fundamentally ill-equipped to do either of those things. But, but, but. 
Oh god, this is frying my brain. My brain is fried already. <laughs> don't worry. But this is proper. This is like flambéing it. What happens for the stuff that comes out of the Excel spreadsheet as shit? You know, what if like if it's I don't know an earwig, and they say, well, no one goes to watch earwigs. That's you know, ecotourism for the earwig is pretty negligible. Uh, so earwig equals minus six dollars. So therefore, don't worry about killing earwigs. Like. Well, you know, as the president of the International Earwig Fan Club, I am deeply offended. You haven't been returning my letters. But no, I think you've actually like really hit the nail on the head there with exactly why this is a totally nonsensical approach to, you know, ecological conservation and restoration and, you know, protecting nature in any way, because... You know, we live in a world and a biological world that is phenomenally complex, and that is absolutely wonderful. And we understand, you know, frankly, very little about it. Um, that's probably why, you know, we find it so wonderful, why it's so valuable. Um, and to try and sort of like abstract out individual species or elements of that um, is ecologically, you know, nonsensical. You can't really say what a whale is worth, even from the perspective of biodiversity, abstracted from all the other species with which it interacts in its lifetime, you know, the food chains it's in, the other systems it's part of. And so, yeah, trying to do these kinds of accounting exercises is like a fundamentally ludicrous approach. And unfortunately, it's something that's becoming like increasingly popular as a way to try and galvanize any action on biodiversity and environmental degradation. And I think, you know, any any one of us or people listening to this, we're all pretty desperate for any kind of action on those things. So, you know, I can see why it's charging ahead because there's this idea that you can appeal to, you know, the profit motive and the self-interest of people to try and get them to invest in these things. Um, but my concern is that we'll end up with exactly what you said, which is just you know, looking at preserving those things that we can understand from a dollar value kind of sense um, and disregarding everything else. So there's two sort of big concepts that have started to become quite popular um, and maybe we can unpack them more later, but I'll just introduce them here. Um, and one of them is the idea of ecosystem services and the other... Oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> yeah, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. You used to now, have that on a T-shirt, didn't you, Dave? <laughs> No, I don't want to cut you off in mid-flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our one-star review that we get said that we always interrupt people, so I'm not going to do that, <laughs> except I need to introduce you to the klaxon. <laughs> now, you, you will hear the klaxon whenever you use a term, which is the sort of thing that people say when they're talking bollocks, <laughs> yeah. right? So well, you can have one. Why it's bollocks? <laughs> okay, I'm just letting you know, you can have one okay. for ecosystem, right, but that's it. <laughs> okay. like, no more. I don't wanna, I don't want to have to klaxon you again, okay. Adrian. All right? Okay. Okay. Please, what are ecosystem services? Um, so there's two things, and you're going to clax at me again, but there's two things that people have started to come up with to try and do this. And they're both, in my view, pretty useless as concepts. So one of them is ecosystem services, clax on time. Um, and it basically describes all the things that like nature currently gives to us freely, whether that's clean water or breathable air or resistance to disease. Um, and the other is natural capital. And again, this is like any other kind of asset. It's like, you know, a stock of forest or some other kind of resource. Um, and it's the value that we attach to that. And so these kinds of terms are becoming very popular. There's, you know, new financial products designed around them. Policymakers are getting very excited about them as a way to engage with the biodiversity crisis. But ultimately, they do exactly what you just suggested 
above with, you know, my beloved earwigs, which is that, you know, they sort of break apart ecosystems in a way that doesn't make sense ecologically and that, you know, risks basically us ending up in a world where we've just chosen to protect those things that we consider economically valuable in a way that could be totally catastrophic in terms of outcomes for nature. Pierre says not. <laughs> Right, now then. In a minute, we're going to play Ol versus Adrienne explaining economic terms game, um, which is mostly going to be Ol tries to explain economic terms that Adrienne talks about in her book. Um, so we're going to play that in a minute. I want to warm you up for that, Ol. If you need to consult your Lady Bird book of economic terms quickly while I ask this question, now is a good time um, to do it. But I'm I did nervous just want- about this game. I did just want to, just before we go any further, back in episode 38 of Sustainababble, which was six years ago, more than six years ago, we talked to Tony Juniper, who is an erudite conservationist, um, our friend, friend of the show, and he made the case, which you kind of said in passing, but it feels like it bears repeating, which is, what else have we got here? Like, we've got an economic system, what is all about money, and what we've come up with a way here is a way to, at the very least, get that system to care a little bit more about something. So it's like, he was like, it's coming from a good place, it's trying to do mm. a good thing. Like, would you agree that this is, in essence, good people trying to do good things, or are there bastards? Well, I think, you know, it's probably a bit of both. I think there's definitely any time that there's, you know, a motivation for profit making involved, there's going to be some jerks in there doing some some dumb shit and just trying to make money out of this. I do think, however, though, that there is, you know, that there's this kind of like groundswell of concern about climate crisis, about the environment, you know, people are really relating to changes in their natural world. And so I do think that it comes from a place of genuine concern. And I hate to use this phrase, but like, consumer demand. So even if businesses are just purely self interested, they're responding to, you know, the public's concern and interest. And so, you know, in that sense, I do think this is a promising sign, I guess. Um, the concern is that it becomes our default approach rather than like a very early waypoint on the road to something that's actually kind of effective and thinks about things in a kind of just and fair way. Right. So the, the problem is not trying to get an economic system to care about the whale. The problem mm. is turning the what the only reason you would save that whale is because it's good for the economic system. That is the problem. Yes? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I don't have any questions. I'm just terrified about this quiz. That's I, my 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 entire thoughts are consumed by how stupid I'm about to sound. I've a jesty nod, Madam Biggin, standing at the back, dressed stupidly and looking stupid. Pattern. <laughs> right, we are going to play. Ol versus Adrienne explaining economic terms quiz. And what's going to happen in Ol versus Adrienne explaining economic terms quiz is I'm going to ask you both to explain an economic term. And Ol is going to answer first. Well, that's... I, no, I don't is I gonna, think, you know, our guests should Adrienne be given is, the opportunity to go first. That seems only polite. Adrienne is going to mark Ol's answer out of five for accuracy. How about that? Um, Sounds great to me. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Now, we're going to start easy... Don't oh, say that, because I'm obviously not going to get this you, right you ready either. For this? <laughs> are you ready for this? In economic terms, I'll, 
And oh, sorry, I should say actually, all of these things are terms that I've taken unhelpfully for all from Adrian's book. Um, and they're all what's so wonderful about Adrian's wonderful book, which we haven't even talked about yet. We're going to do that. The value of a whale is it basically explains all of these economic concepts, what you may have heard bandied about, and says here's how people use it, here's what they think it means, and here's what it actually means in practice. Right. So <laughs> it's great at that. One of the early ones that Adrian talks about in economic terms is efficiency. So we must be economically efficient in, for example, saving the planet. So what does that mean, Ol? When people say that, um, my palms are getting sweaty. By the way, genuinely, <laughs> I would assume that in economic terms, people mean for every pound or dollar you spend, you get more and more, increasingly more pounds or dollars of whatever in return. So, or, or if you're trying to do a thing, you can do it more and more cheaply. I suppose the opposite. That's two quite yep. different answers. That, yeah, I'm covering my bases now. You're not allowed <laughs> to say everything <laughs> until Adrian smiles at you. Adrian, how, how did I get on um, with that? I think there's some chaotic intuition there. Um, unfortunately, economics is dumb and unintuitive. So maybe like a two? Oh, God. Two out of five. Two out of five. That's all right. No, that's okay. That's okay. That's, that's okay. good. Anything you want to say at this point, Ol, before I go any further? Uh, I mean, efficiency is a is a is a red herring anyway. I'm going to kind of try to come up with some cliches. Um, uh, the Jevons paradox. There you go. That's the thing, isn't it? About efficiency. Don't just say things. Okay. Well, then no. I haven't got anything I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> Adrienne, what went so this is right at the heart of your book, the idea of economic efficiency. This is one of the ideas you say that kind of got us into the pickle that we're in. Do you want to talk a bit about what that means in your book's sense? Yeah. So the efficiency that I specifically talk about in the book is actually slightly different even than the Jevons paradox type of efficiency, which is about like using physical resources. So alas. Um but the one I talk about in the book is basically a, sort of an optimal distribution and sort of like cost effective use of resources um so i mean how how deeply should i impact oh not here? not very deeply no no just the, the i think the ladybird version will do well look we've got we've got an established audience here which is all and we've got an established level of knowledge so maybe if you could slightly improve that knowledge that'd be great yeah so the way that economists think about it is through basically sort of like a perito optimal outcome clacks on you're still getting a klaxon whether you say klaxon <laughs> oh, or not. I'll stop you getting a klaxon. <laughs> so basically this idea that the resources we have, typically they're thinking about it in terms of money, um, are you know, is distributed in a way that it is all used. Um, that doesn't need to mean it's sort of necessarily equally distributed, but that any further gains made by someone else would or made by someone would sort of cause a loss for someone else. So it's sort of a position of optimal distribution such that my increasing my, you know, resources or profitability doesn't directly decrease someone else's. Give us an example with reference, please, to cake. With reference to cake. Ooh, okay, I can do that. So this is a really, this is one of my favorite things is that some mainstream economists give great examples like this. One of them is, you know, the iconic one is like a fishing village, but you could have a cake that has 12 slices and you could have, you know, a birthday party with 12 people and you could have a distribution where 
everyone at the table gets one slice of cake. That is both fair because it's equitable and it's efficient. However, you could also have a situation where one person has 11 slices of cake and the other people all share that one slice of cake. That is not fair, but it is technically in economic terms efficient because it's using all the resources. There isn't waste and it's technically an efficient distribution. Okay. So something being efficient tells you nothing about who's getting what. It just means the stuff is being got in the most kind of clean way possible. Yeah? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's something that I can tell my kids when I steal their fish fingers. The fish fingers have been eaten. <laughs> the fact that you're hungry is neither here nor there. That's, that's what we're saying, right? Exactly. Yeah. Next question. We'll probably only do three. Next question in Old versus Adrian explaining economic terms quiz. Um, this is one you should be on for well, just, uh, just at this point, this would one. like to point out that go. I am competing against both the author of a book about this stuff and someone who like went to economics school to do a degree in economics about this stuff. And that seems hardly fair. I'd like to point out that I'm a music graduate. So... <laughs> you know, basically haven't had any sort of formal education at all. So this is all very unfair and I feel <laughs> under pressure and on the spot and I don't like it. What? <laughs> shut up and answer the question. What is green growth? What you have discovered, if it has a name, is some green. Well, if we're, we're not presumably talking about medical issues here... Uh, no, nor bath, nor bath, nor bath ones. ones. <laughs> uh, green growth. I suppose that means um, bits of the economy that are useful for addressing or mitigating climate change that are growing in size. So, for instance, maybe um, the wind industry, off- offshore wind industry, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, would be considered green growth because it would be contributing jobs and um, uh, taxation, I suppose, and stuff to the economy. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Adrian, mark that out of five. Um, I actually am going to give that a pretty high score. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to give it a, I'm gonna give it a four. Well, I'll take that. Thank you very much. Yes. And I'm going to give it a four. Because because you might cry if you don't. Well, <laughs> no, but because because frankly, green growth is a really poorly defined term, and like policymakers and politicians love to bandy it around all the time as if everyone agrees on what it actually means. Um, and it's meant to be, you know, maybe that's economic growth that we've decoupled, as they say, from carbon emissions. So it's economic growth where we don't continue to have growth that's accompanied by growth in emissions or where economic growth in the GDP sense doesn't mean that we're consuming more, you know, material resources or, you know, destroying more of the environment. Um, Maybe that's what they mean, um, but no one really agrees on the term. It's just like a really trendy buzzword for how we can do decarbonization without sort of disrupting our existing economic system, which is entirely centered around growth. Right. So I think what you're talking about there, a lot of people would use that as an example. A lot of like politicians would refer to growing green industries as a big part of it. But I would say that's like one element of a very nebulous kind of term. I saw a graph the other day 
about all this, which made me think, and it was, it was trying to. know from Dave's facial expression that none of the last five minutes is going in the final edit so I think we should move on <laughs> quite right you can say, say what you like now if you want to say something profoundly libelous <laughs> this is the section of the show to say last question in I'll explains I'll and Adrian explain economic terms quiz is uh, a quite simple one also. I hope you're I hope you're ready for this. Could you please explain what an integrated assessment model is, specifically with reference to the economic analysis of uh, climate change impacts? You know full well that no, I cannot explain whatever those <laughs> words were. What are you talking about? An integrated assessment model? Well, I mean, this is the point, isn't it? Um, Adrian, please don't, I mean, please don't actually explain what one is, but like, what, what am I talking about here? Why is this stuff important? What is going on when I say those words from my mouth? Um, so a very, very briefly, uh, an integrated assessment model is basically one of the kinds of uh, models that informs, I mean, how am I going to define this in really basic terms? I'm not going to be able to do no. this without clacks on it. <laughs> no. Well, you don't, you don't need to. Look, you don't need to. The, the point being, it's just basically, look, Ol, you did all right. Uh, um, you got three out of, what did you get? Three out of 15. That's not bad. That's six out of 15. You got six out of 15 in Ol versus Adrian Explains the Economic Terms game. And the reason that I asked that is because like, in your book is explanations of all of this stuff. But what your book is mostly saying is, look at this kind of edifice of confusing, complicated economic stuff stuff that is all being used to kind of suck in numbers and spit out saving the planet stuff. And like, how has it got to this is my real question. Like, what is happening with that kind of thinking? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to, you know, crawl in the heads of people who are in positions of power and, you know, have the levers of policy. Um, but I think it's that we have over the past, you know, several decades become, you know, enshrined sort of in this society where it's hard to disentangle what we think of as human welfare or well-being from um, sort of economic growth and from money. Um, and so an integrated assessment model is a great example of that, um, where it's combining sort of modeling about um, how the atmosphere might change and then trying to say, okay, this is how that will impact uh, you know, the economy and human well-being. And again, the way that we express human well-being is all too often there in sort of money-based terms. Um, and I think there's a mix of sort of just utility there. People need some kind of single value that they can attach to things that makes things equivalent. So that can make human health and, you know, carbon dioxide equivalent in some way. Um, the problem is that that, you know... But they're not equivalent. They're not equivalent yeah. and it, you know, it erases a huge amount of the actual information that we need to understand how these things will, um, will affect human life. And, you know, the, the impact of the, you know, the climate crisis on the economy, um, is something that, you know, it doesn't just inform the way that economists think about this, you know, it informs, and I talk about this in the book a little bit, you know, it informs the two degrees Celsius target itself. Um, you know, that doesn't arrive necessarily from a purely sort of scientific assessment of what would be a safe threshold. Some of that is attributed, if not all, um, to a, a climate economist named William Nordhaus, who did sort of an experiment where he thought about 
how changing temperatures would impact GDP growth to arrive at like an optimal balance of those two forces. So it's completely pervasive in the way that we've approached these issues, um, which is a problem insofar as it has yeah, erased any other kind of way that we might think about um, human and environmental sort of well-being. Hello there, my name is Crichton2x4b523p, such a jerky middle name, and you are listening to Sustainable. If we're sort of accepting, maybe we're not accepting, I don't know, but if we are kind of accepting that this whole kind of playing into the existing way of thinking about the world in terms of economic value and not much else is a is a bad idea then we're kind of saying to an extent well we've got to smash capitalism then um or at least you know smash bits of it but uh, do we have <laughs> that's there's a bit there's a back time there, isn't there? do we have time to do that i want to smash capitalism but i've wanted to smash capitalism for the seven years that we've been doing this podcast and no one's coming here saying this is how we smash capitalism and by the way i've made a good start like should we just price up a wasp and get on with it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is a really, I mean, fundamental question that I think I also spend a lot of time wrestling with and kind of motivated the book itself, to be honest with you. Um, I, I mean, I initially described the pitch for the book to my editors as radicalizing my mum. So <laughs> basically trying to... Hang on, who's your mum? Do we need to know <laughs> who your mum is? My mum, Elizabeth. Shout out, Liz. Uh, she's a very lovely... Uh, Elizabeth Windsor? Of, exactly. <laughs> um, sort of politically centre, kind of liberal type woman who thinks climate change is bad and cares about the environment, but, you know, wouldn't really engage beyond thinking, oh, I should try and make my investment sustainable or I should try to recycle more or, oh, look, you know, the Canadian government is trying to introduce, you know, a carbon tax. Isn't that great? We're finally doing something about the environment. So I think what I wanted to do was try to channel what I think is a legitimately like huge amount of growing energy and concern across the political spectrum, frankly, um, around uh, climate and environmental crisis and try to basically explain to everyone why the sort of default position of most sort of Western or Northern governments um, and the kind of policies they're pursuing and the way that we're conceiving of this problem um, is, you know, fundamentally flawed. And in terms of smashing capitalism, so, I mean, yes, from my own, like my own personal politics, yes. Um, I think, though, that there are, you know, a lot of steps between where we currently are and what we're currently doing and totally smash capitalism, which a lovely end goal. Um, but in the intervening period, you know, there are still a lot of things that we can and should be doing differently than the way we are that don't totally kind of overthrow the existing system. They might make substantial changes, um, but it's gone so far in sort of like the extreme in one direction um, that I think, you know, there's a lot of things that you could sort of pare back and change without it, you know, being fully overhauled. And I do think those are really necessary because, you know, carbon pricing, which I mentioned before, is a really, really good example of something that we spent, you know, years and a lot of capacity and energy pursuing. Um, and so when we talk about, you know, do we actually have time for these things, you know, very, very little reduction in carbon emissions has come out of 
global efforts at creating a carbon pricing kind of scheme that is effective. We've dedicated so much energy to it. Um, and so to me, that is just as much a kind of non-solution or as unrealistic an approach as trying to do things that are much more radical. And I think, you know, the way I think about this is, you know, we have two things that are very entrenched and hard to reconcile or hard to grapple with, one of which is accelerating climate and ecological crisis. We know the timelines for that. We know how difficult you know it's going to be to overcome those. The other is an incredibly entrenched system of global capitalism um, and trying to you know drive act, um, action on climate and environmental crisis within those constraints. And those two things are both like pretty immovable beasts. One of them is scientifically immovable and can't be changed. You know, climate and ecological crises are happening, whereas the political system, you know, entrenched as it might be, is nonetheless the one of those two that's malleable. So if something's going to have to give, you know, to me, it's that. Now, got it in one hundred. <laughs> Minister, it takes time to do things now. <laughs> is that the argument? I was trying to think, like, okay this is a someone saying they want to smash capitalism here and you know what you are talking about is often the sort of thing that lefties say but is there an argument that you could persuade a righty about that basically this way is not doing it like it is not actually working if what you want to do is save planet demonstrably putting it into a market system is not working because that's what we're doing and we're buggered does that argument work yeah well i mean i think I think it should, and I think it should if people who are sort of market advocates are actually appraising what we're doing on the terms that they set. So when it comes to something like carbon markets and, you know, carbon offsetting schemes, which tend to go, you know, hand in hand with a carbon market, because um, you need to have sort of credits to trade and offsets will allow you to do that. Um, there are a lot of ways that you can approach resistance to those from the sort of lefty perspective, as you said. And I think those are, you know, really valid and we should continue to push those. So the fact that, you know, these systems might create huge injustices, both at the domestic level and internationally, you know, there's all sorts of potential problems with offsetting schemes, you know, displacing indigenous peoples or, you know, subsistence farmers and all of that. And I think those arguments are incredibly important to make, even if, people on you know the right might not care about that as much or might not engage with those and i'll just start by saying i think we should always make those but you know on their own terms as well a lot of the solutions that i look at and i use solutions in sort of scare quotes that i look at in the book so like carbon markets or like sort of sustainable finance or um, i get into kind of the commodification of nature like putting a value on a whale um you know all of these things setting aside the justice question to be worth pursuing should work on their own terms. Um, and what I do in the book is try to explore why, you know, not only are they not already working, but there are sort of flaws in the logics underlying them that mean that they never will. So if you are someone who is a market advocate, you know, that's fine and you can stand for markets in some instances. Um, but if you claim to be someone who, and these are the sort of values attributed to markets, you know, you're someone who cares about um, being a realist, you care you care about being, you know, practical and pragmatic, getting things done. And maybe you care about principles like freedom. You know, none of these things are really compliant with the kinds of solutions that sort of green capitalism, as I call it in the book, um, is pursuing. So I think, you know, if we're going to be honest, as someone who might have a right-wing perspective, evaluating something in the terms that you purport to care about, then none of these quite sort of stack up to any of those. And so a lot of them come down to 
that sort of real politic question that I mentioned before, which is, you know, we live in this system, we live in capitalism, you know, it's not changing. Um, but ultimately, you know, that's presented as the realist argument when it doesn't engage with sort of ecological or climatic reality and the fact that, you know, none of these solutions are actually delivering. While economists are trying to change the framework of our economic thinking, businesses are not waiting around. For many companies, the cost of climate change and the impact of damaging nature are already too apparent. But wouldn't some economists and, and advocates of that sort of approach, wouldn't they say, well, hang on a minute, part of the reason this isn't happening is because bleeding heart you know, people like us, I was going to say something <laughs> ruder, but I didn't. Uh, bleeding heart people like us are getting in there and, you know, saying, oh, no, all this green capitalism isn't the right way to do it. And, and we're slowing it down. And actually, there's no, there isn't enough political will to kind of go full throttle on some of these market solutions. And so, like, the reason a carbon tax hasn't worked is not because the underlying logic in economic terms is wrong. It's because the political will hasn't gone, right, okay, set the price of carbon way up here so that it does start to work. Like, w would that not be their response to the to the challenge that is failing on its own terms? Yeah, that is really sort of like the most classic response of advocates of carbon pricing in particular as sort of like a totemic solution. Um, so it gets talked about a lot. And that is that is really kind of the primary response, which is that, you know, this is a really elegant and kind of brilliant theory and it would work only you know if people would just get out of the way if people would stop complaining about having slightly higher bills or if we could come up with a, you know a kind of more clever way to do like a carbon tax and rebate which is something where you try and sort of give money back out that was taken in the carbon tax to people who you know maybe are on lower incomes for example and so we've spent a lot of time coming up with all these kinds of excuses for why they're not working but you can look, there's two things that I'll say. And one is that you can look at existing schemes where carbon pricing is in place um, and see what's happened there to see why they're not working. So I'll start with two, one of which is the European Emissions Trading Scheme, um, sort of flagship thing that we think of when we think about carbon markets. Um, and, you know, while it boasts that it's, you know, accomplished 40% or something like that reductions within the industries it covers, so, you know, energy, heavy industry aviation. Um, when it comes to the EU's overall emissions, um, research shows it's closer to 3.8%. Maybe it's four now. That that estimate's about a year too old. Um, and, you know, that's, that's not all that impressive given how long it's been in operation and sort of what a big deal is made of it. And a lot of that doesn't come down to like bleeding heart lefty resistance to green capitalism. A lot of that comes down to capitalism itself, which is that, you know, very effective lobbying on behalf of affected industries means that there have been lots of exclusions, lots of free permits, et cetera. And so, you know, a lot of resistance comes from, you know, the capitalist core as well to these things. Industry has been hugely resistant to carbon pricing, although has come around a little bit recently, even Exxon uh, now and again, I'm using Sierra quotes, supports a carbon price, although it was, you know, found out that it only does that so that, you know, it can look like it's green because it knows it's not going to happen. Um, and, you know, the California carbon pricing scheme as well is sort of held up as a really shining example of success. Um, but it turns out a lot of um, those emissions are likely attributable, not or emissions reductions rather, are attributable not to the carbon pricing scheme itself, but to other sort of direct regulations around, for example, directly regulating car um, engine efficiency. So that's one thing where, you know, you can see that they're not really accomplishing that much. And it's not the fault 
necessarily of, you know, people protesting higher fuel prices. So look, massive, massive respect for writing the book, which I do recommend. And massive respect in particular for not doing the thing with books that annoys me more than anything else. So we always have people on here and they write books, which is generally versions of what you've done. You know, not not the same stuff, but basically going, here's a complicated thing and I'm going to explain it to you. And here's all the ways in which you should despair and get annoyed at the thing I'm telling you about. And then they put a little chapter at the end. And you can imagine they didn't really want to write this chapter, which basically says... And here are three things we should do about it, and I've still got hope, right? And those three things are always crap. They're always like, get involved in neighbourhood gardening schemes, <laughs> thinking of you, George Monbiot, um, and stuff like that, right? And you didn't do that. And you say at the start, you're like, look, I ain't fixing all this. It ain't my job to fix it. I'm going to explain to you why it's all screwed. You know, go away and smash capitalism, basically. And why, like, why did you leave it there? Did you just, did you not want to kind of give some six ways to dismantle capitalism or is that for the sequel? <laughs> no, that's a really good question. And it's funny because I had this exact conversation with my editor. I was like, I just, I, I just did, refused yeah. to do one of those chapters. And in part, I think that's because, you know, one, I definitely don't feel like I have all the answers and I don't think any single person has all the answers. Um, and I think, you know, for me, a big part of uh, the problem that we're facing is that, you know, our lives are going to have to probably change substantially, particularly for those of us that are, you know, comparatively well off in the global north. You know, that is a reality that we're facing. A lot of this comes down to, you know, huge domestic and global inequality. And so we need to be thinking about, you know, what are the things that we want to take forward to a decarbonized future and what are the things we could probably do without and i don't think that any one person should be in a place of prescribing that to me that's something that should be sort of democratically determined and arrived at and so intentionally i kind of avoid prescription at the end of the book for that reason because that's sort of one of my fundamental principles the other is frankly that like there's such an incredible wealth of scholarship and work of people who have spent much longer than I have thinking about, you know, what the f do we do instead? Um, you know, whether that's, you know, the entire degrowth kind of community or whether that's, you know, a lot of people who've done work on a Green New Deal or whether that's people who are thinking about completely alternative ways of living. So philosophers thinking about different meanings of like abundance and freedom and happiness and, you know, what we should be thinking about as we sort of look towards a radically different future. And frankly, I didn't want to do a really shit job of just writing like <laughs> here's a short summary paragraph of this incredible because they're so yeah. bad those paragraphs are so yeah. bad yeah and so <laughs> you know I think they're so bad and they're depressing and no one likes them and no one feels satisfied with them anyways um, yeah. and so you know what I try and do at the end instead is say you know there's a wealth of scholarship out there people working on degrowth reparations green deals all these things please go read their work. They know much more than I do about where we take things forward. But to fundamentally think about that question of value and what we value and what sort of matters to us. So for me, you know, I outline sort of democracy, justice, freedom as like core values that I think most people across the political spectrum, unless you're a fascist, <laughs> agree on. Um, and, uh, I, you know, thinking about how we build those into a future in which those qualities can apply to everyone in the world. So, you know, my freedom isn't predicated on the unfreedom of, you know, exploited laborers somewhere else in the world, um, that kind of question. And so I leave it with that sort of a provocation instead, um, rather than trying to do a very short and shitty laundry list of lots of people's very interesting ideas. <laughs>
Adrian, just a very quick follow-up question. What what was your editor's response to that? Because it, I, you can just imagine, as Dave was saying, you just imagine that they are desperate to be like, no, but you've got to leave people with hope. You've got to leave people <laughs> feeling yeah, good about right, themselves. They're writing the press release. Above all, it's a book about hope. It's like, yeah. <laughs> like what, 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 what were they saying? It's really not. Um, what's funny is that the actual publisher themselves, um, I think, we're quite keen on that. I think people do really want, from a marketing perspective, for the book to be hopeful. Um, thankfully, my dear, sweet editor, uh, Tom, shout out Thomas Dark, um, he really understood my, you know, cynicism. And, you know, he was really on board. I basically said to him, if I try to do that, it will be garbage and no one will <laughs> like it. So there's just no point. So we might as well agree now. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Adrienne, and uh, very best of luck with the book, which is published uh, about a week after this podcast comes out, we think. Is that is that right? Uh, yes, 26th of July. Superb. And uh, where... Uh, the, the, value of, the value of a whale. Yes, the value of a whale with yeah. Manchester University Press. And where would you like people to buy it? Uh, ideally um, not can... the evil place in the sky. Exactly. Not the place in the sky. You can go direct from Manchester University Press, um, but apparently lots of bookstores around the UK have already started to, I have friends seeing it pop up places. So apparently it's around. Uh, your local independent bookseller would be my preference, but not always possible. And you on, <laughs> you on the socials and that kind of thing? Can people get in touch with you? Yes. So one? I'm on Twitter. Um, it's at Adri Buller, A-D-R-I-B-U-L-L-E-R. Although I have so much anxiety around the release of the book that I'm not checking it hugely frequently. <laughs> um, and uh, that's probably the best place to contact me. Or I work at an organization called Commonwealth with a space in the middle. It's a think tank. And my email address is on the website there if anyone wants to get in touch. Right, that is just about it for another episode of Babble. Thank you very, very much to Adrian for writing the book and for coming on here and talking yep. about it yep. uh, and for getting us thinking about all of this stuff. I very much look forward to the sequel, The Value of a Mongoose, and, um, I mean, presumably quite a rich history of books that could go on a long time. Hey, oh, uh, hey, oh, hey, oh, what's the value of a pelican? I don't know, Dave. What is the value of a pelican? I don't know, but I know it comes with a large bill. Hey! hey! Golly gosh. <laughs> Didn't even force people to stick around for that one. Uh, if you're still here, thank you for listening. Thank you very much, as ever, to Dickie Moore for the music that begins, ends and intertwinkles this podcast. And thank you to Arthur Stovall for the logo, which is on all of our stuff, including T-shirts, which you can buy from our website, sustainable.fish. Get yourself a T-shirt for this hot, hot weather. Yes, uh, you can get in touch with us and you can tell us what you thought of the show. We are on the Facebook if you look for Sustainable. Oh, We're yes. on Twitter at the Babble Wagon, not at Sustainable because that's owned by someone who won't give us the thing still, even though he's had it for eight years and won't hand it over. Um, or you can drop us an email to hello at sustainable.fish, like all the blustery, spamming PR agencies do. Yes, what was that one this week asking... Um... Oh, hey, Olin Dave. This is our most loyal and dogged PR spam bot who sends us something about once a week uh, <laughs> attempting to get some faceless gimp to come on our show um, and said um, she's sure that we're a very busy woman, but would we have time <laughs> to consider her email at some point? That's um, so impressively wrong, isn't it? It's um, like... I, I, 
no problem with being called a very busy woman per se, but check the shit you're sending out. If you're going to send us stuff, check it. <laughs> check it. You're getting named next time you do that. I know you don't listen, despite what you say. Go away. Right. We're done here. Uh, if you, no, we're not done. We need your reviews. Uh, that that one star review, which I've now read, uh, mm. and I'm, a, a touch bruised by uh, yes. it's still there invisible so um, we need some other reviews that say no we're lovely uh, to drown that one out so go on iTunes leave us a five star review say some things with words um, or um, just yeah tell everybody that we're great yes right okay jolly good oh I am off to dismantle capitalism brick by sorry brick what are you off to do I'm going to read an economics textbook because I feel it's time well look I've good news for you all. There's a book coming out on July the 26th, which is just the book that you need. <laughs> okay, bye. Okay, bye. Hey, oh, 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 yes, yes, yes. Oh, oh another oh, one. Yes. Another yes. one. Yes. 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 Oh. What do we want? Um. Uh, an equitable and just economic no. system for the many, not the few. No. What do we want? Aeroplane noises. When do we want them? Yeah. <laughs> I like that one. I like that one a lot. <laughs>